0: That right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, FIFTY at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Law. I'm your host, Nick Posick. Today, I'm joined by guests Christina Moggs and Yu Juju to discuss their recent book, Heritage Politics in China, The Power of the Past. This book examines the impact of heritage policies and discourses on the Chinese state and Chinese society. It sheds light on the way Chinese heritage policies have transformed the narratives and cultural practices of the past to serve the interests of the present. Yu Zhezhu and Christina Moggs, welcome to New Books in Law. I'm thrilled you can join me to discuss heritage politics in China, The Power of the
2: Past. Hi, thank you for having us.
1: Hi, Nick. Thank you very much for your invitation.
2: So I
0: enjoyed this book immensely. And my first question for you is, Where write this book and why now?
1: Yeah, um, about 10 years ago, um, when um, I was writing my last book on ethnic tourism in Southwest China, I, I probably believe Christina also had a similar experience that I had a chance to travel around the country and notice that there's a growing national interest in cultural heritage and Chinese past. Um, and in the past decades, China is very active in nominating heritage on the UNESCO World Heritage Program. Branding and listing something as world heritage or intangible heritage has become an important culture industry. And you might also find that on a global domestic level, whenever you go in China, Almost every province, city, and towns are doing something about cultural heritage. If you're asking us why we're doing this project now, um, I think it's, it's, it's just been, uh, become a national phenomenon that local government has facilitated urban renewal of historic cities for the purpose of city branding. They're also passionate to organizing some kind of intangible heritage festivals or fairs to promote local handicrafts, food, and cultural customs. And in the meantime, there has been a rapid emergence of private museums and the collections and people who are passionate in collecting and displaying ancient objects. Why? You might also find that universities are running conferences and research projects on topics related to cultural heritage or help governments in documenting, listing.
0: You describe it in the book actually as a heritage craze or heritage boom, uh, heritage fever, and, and it's something that I know it comes up a lot um, in your work, actually, Yuja. Uh, could you explain to our listeners how exactly this idea of heritage exists in China's public imagination?
1: Right. Um, this is, in a book we call it Chinese heritage fever and other scholars um, um, might call it heritage boom or, or craze. Um, this is a, um, it's not only about i mean this back to the question of what its heritage is and most of the people will think about heritage in a certain sense of um, monuments um, ancient um, culture collections on objects and what we define and and what chinese people think about or imagination of heritage is is a very kind of um, um, culture pr- idea of culture heritage um, which in, it refers to uh, very wide Definition of heritage. Anything refers to the past, um, um, where it refers to uh, as a cultural production of heritage. And so it could be something about um, uh, uh, um, ancient objects, but it could also be uh, um, uh, theme parks, which refers to um, ancient uh, music or or, uh, some kind of um, ancient handicrafts making. But it's interests us that this idea of preserving and collecting ancient objects about and this kind of fascination of the Chinese past was not new to China. And um, in ancient China, uh, we found that heritage practice were often related to royal collections, documentation, knowledge transmission, and history writing. So you can find from the last maybe four or five thousand years, Chinese civilization has been transmitted through the learning of texts and images and the passing on of objects. But what new today, um, if you ask us uh, the imagination of, Ch- of heritage in Chinese public, I think it's the scope, the scale, the strategies and the innovation and motivation. Sorry. So I think Christina has some ideas about that political motivation and the political strategy particularly.
0: That's great. Um so, Christina, yes, please do because politics, obviously, and political strategy is very much a part of your book, right? The subtitle of it, The Power of the Past. right? We always hear the power of used in this kind of um, gentle, innocuous way. But yours suggests that's part of a much more complex political strategy for China,
2: yes, absolutely. And that kind of ties in what um, Uji was just talking about because, on the one hand, heritage, and that could be you know in any country really, is is often a tool by you know that is used by the government for nation building, for creating a national identity, for supporting you know pride in the nation, um, fostering you know some form of nationalism as well. Um, but in China, it's it goes even further than that because um, the Chinese past uh, has been criticised um, for so long, has been repressed, especially during the you know the mao era so the communist times and now there's really this this um fever also because people really want to connect to the past and really want to kind of think about who they are and and be proud of the imperial times that were often criticized so therefore now the the chinese government is is using this um and promoting heritage um to this extent because it wants to um you know foster this this, this nationalism um and that's that's really one um, key, key strategy here. But then on the other hand, um, and this is why we included a, a case study on, on ethnic minority regions in China, is that it also um, ties together the nation state, which the Chinese nation state, which is very much um, diverse, ethnically speaking. So you have so many different um, regions, uh, you have 55 ethnic groups, and having a national heritage is really um, also a tool to you know, support ethnic minority governance. Because you can integrate all of these different ethnic minorities into one kind of national past, one national kind of narrative. And the the Chinese party state um, assumes the responsibility of protecting this national um, or ethnic minority heritage and the the sites, cultural practices, but also kind of gains power over kind of interpreting their meaning and displaying them. So it kind of takes over um, the management of that. And then I think a a third reason is that um, heritage, as Uje also just said, uh, is very much related to the tourism industry, cultural industry, and fostering heritage is not only good for kind of governing people and governing kind of or uh, fostering national um, identities, but it's also good for economic development um, because, you know, tourists go to heritage sites, go to museums, um, you know, they, they pay for accommodation, transport, food, leisure. Um, so all of that is really a big, big industry. Um, and that, again, also fosters um, kind of support for the, for the Chinese government, because it's very much about um, kind of a, we call it a, like a performance-based legitimacy. So the Chinese government is very much based, um, or its legitimacy is based on being able to, um, you know, pr- promote and enable continuous economic growth. Um, and the heritage industry, because it's become so important, um, is, is a key pillar here. And I think finally, kind of moving outside of China, I think um, on the international level, um, so the, the promotion and inter- international recognition of, of Chinese heritage through you know, UNESCO um, World Heritage Site listings, um, but also through just cultural exchange programs and all of that fosters kind of China's su- cultural soft power, um, worldwide, which again do um, national pride and uh, nationalism on the domestic level. So, therefore, I would say that um, heritage has become a key tool for the Chinese government um, because it fosters many um, objectives um, that are really key. But I think the UNESCO is is really important here to mention because um, you know while the Chinese government can do whatever. Uh, perhaps that at once domestically and really try to to use and the uh, heritage um, domestically for you know domestic purposes. Um, on the UNESCO level, um, UNESCO kind of through its listings of world heritage can kind of recognize and legitimize what is done domestically. And um, so, for instance, if if the Chinese government um, lists the Putala Palace in Tibet, then the UNESCO actually recognizes um, Chinese sovereignty over. Tibet. Um, And it also is very much uh, these world heritage site listings or listings of intangible cultural heritage, faster cultural soft power, you know, um, the attractiveness of Chinese culture worldwide, and and therefore also, um, you know, promotes, again, national pride domestically. So I would say that um, while heritage feeds into meeting many different kinds of objectives, um, all of them together fostered the legitimacy of the one-party state because people um, kind of support the government because it brings economic development, um, kind of social stability, and, and kind of enhances pride in the nation. So therefore, heritage is a key strategy in, you know, by, by the Chinese government um, to you know, promote uh, itself as kind of the um, guardian of the past.
0: And to demonstrate this, you uh, zeroed in in case studies of very specific sites and sites that you mentioned tourism earlier. I think a lot of people that have, might have been on tours of China or have a general familiarity with China might know uh, Xi'an, Lijiang, Nanjing. You know, all big cities, all with rich histories. How did you uh, select these sites in particular? And Tell me about your research process for examining these sites.
1: One of the main reasons we select these sites is that we intend to examine um, different perspective heritage in various contexts in China. So just like Christina mentioned, that we like to show that heritage is not only a cultural production of the past. It's also a political project that refers to power, and equality, and social justice. It has political and social consequence on people's life, particular local communities who originally owns those cultural heritage. So when we are um, looking at different sites, even as we mentioned that this, ca- this, her- this heritage phenomenon is everywhere in China, but we like to use some sites representing different parts of, the, of, of that perspective. So Xi'an refers to the theme of urban heritage, Lijiang focuses on, as, as Christina mentioned, our ethnic minority. And Nanjing refers to intangible cultural heritage. And we like to use these sites to cover different p- parts of, of heritage um, in different ways.
0: Could you give us more of a thumbnail of each of these sites for our listeners, for those who maybe might not be as familiar with China? Okay, then
1: it's a time for us probably just to have a quick look, go through these um, examples and cases. Um, first is Xi'an. Um, Chinese cities and its urban development probably reflects one of the most significant perspective of Chinese modernization economic development. And in the last decades, we see lots of deconstruction of old neighborhoods in Chinese cities for the sake of replacing them with modern shopping malls, highways, and commercial buildings. But on the other hand, we can also find that lots of historical cities and towns throughout the country like Beijing, Nanjing, and Shanghai are redesigning themselves as representation of critical periods in Chinese past. Xi'an is one of them. Um, as an ancient capital of China, Xi'an has undergone large scale of rift development by creating updated clean buildings. And, uh, and neighborhoods, which ref- reference to the ancient architecture, streets, and culture. So the city is rebuilding a modern functioning replica of the ancient imperial city of Chang'an. So Chang'an was the ancient name of the city in imperial time. And in addition to those real heritage, such as monument, city walls, temples, and archaeological, like terrata army. Um, if you g- went, go to China, uh, Xi'an as the first time as a foreigner, probably you will see all of them. The local authorities also demolished some neighborhoods and rebuilt uh, spacious and beautiful uh, updated neighborhoods and amusing uh, amusement parks with the theme of ancient imperial China. Such are results of spatial production. Echo is what an- anthropologist Michael Hertzfeld calls spatial cleansing where he did his research about the development of cities in Greece and Thailand and Rome, for instance. And such cleansing process um, benefit to young migrants, tourists and investment, investors who are interested in all of these beautiful heritage projects while deplacing the poor and elder original residents. So you will find that the, this process leads to um, a result of gentrification and the social segregation of classes. The cases of the case of Xi'an illustrate that the government used public space to stimulate, stimulate local economy and promote tourism and local real estate industry. Such urban projects flavor, favor high middle class interests with the cost of social welfare of the poor and the low class migrants. Communities and individuals often celebrate and accept such state-led spatial production as long as the new living environment does not threaten their personal needs and desires. Uh, Christina, would you like to talk about Nanjing?
2: Yes, um, so so Nanjing is in a sense similar uh, to Xi'an because it's, it has a long history of uh, you know being kind of a cultural hub um, in in the eastern region, you know producing um, silk for the imperial court, uh, it has been c- the capital um, of China for several times. Um, so so on the one hand, it, it shares this you know very kind of um, more kind of high culture uh, maybe kind of longstanding tradition um, in, in in terms of you know that are now reflected in heritage sites and cultural practices, but on the other hand. Um, it is also very different because it is located in the very prosperous eastern coast of China, you know, near Shanghai, and, um, and it's really a very much economically developed area. And um, while Yuji like looks at or kind of has very much done a lot of research in on, on um, kind of Xi'an's neighborhoods and kind of more material culture, um, the Nanjing chapter uh, has is more kind of focused on, as you said, uh, intangible cultural heritage. So. Cultural practices related to handcrafts, uh, performing arts, um, music, anything like that, and to kind of um, examine that more closely, we, we went into uh, museums, um, but also kind of looking into or speaking with, uh, you know, cultural practitioners. So who who are called intangible cultural heritage inheritors. So they, um, they kind of live off of, you know, producing, for instance, handcrafts for the tourism industry and um, or perform, for instance. And so the, the Nanjing um, case study provides a different perspective on heritage by focusing on the immaterial forms of, of heritage. Muji, do you want to talk about the third case study?
1: Oh, sure. Thanks, Christina. Um, the third case of the book, um, as Christina already mentioned in the beginning, that is Lijiang that represents ethnic minority heritage. Um, some of the audience might already get familiar with China or Lijiang, this particular place. It's a city in southwest China, six hundred kilometers from the capital of Yunnan, uh, not far from Laos, Burma, and Vietnam. In early days, this is a remote area in which uh, many Western adventure and explorers were attracted by its mountain sceneries, waterway, wildlife, traditional architecture, and ethnic minority and religious culture. So different from Xi'an and Nanjing, it's a very kind of remote but still very attractive um, place. Um, However, in 1996, an earthquake struck the region. Right after earthquake, the place was recognized as a UNESCO World Heritage Site, making it even more popular to many Westerners and domestic Chinese. And the government used the post-earthquake reconstruction as an opportunity to recreate a built environment to match early 20th century image of Lijiang to attract investors, migrants and tourists. And in the meantime, local ethnic tradition and its religious culture has been transformed into cultural product for display and consumption. In this case, we explore the role of cultural heritage in ethnic minority area. And in addition to those similar spatial transformation or intangible heritage, as we mentioned in the Nanjing and Xi'an case, such as beautification and displacement going on, ethnic heritage in Lijiang. Uh, also facilitates which we call National Civilization Project. What does it mean? So on one hand, heritage and its associated ethnic tourism industry facilitates a production of cultural environment where Han Chinese, which is the major population of China, act as a modern and advanced, uh, while the indigenous minorities, as we call ethnic minorities, Shaoshu Minzu, represent the exotic, colorful, authentic, and the feminized. And the on, on the other hand, heritage also depoliticize or sometimes even harmonize the ethnic minority culture. Like Lijiang, terms such as unity, integration, and culture exchange often appear in the official documentation of these ethnic heritage sites. This language legitimize the discourse of historical continuity of Han Chinese culture in these modern ethnic minority regions. They also highlight the blending ethnic culture under the Chinese features, a discourse of harmony to promote national unity and Han culture dominance. That's why we call it um, a, a civilization project, a project which is diplomatized and um, the the ethnic minority um, discourse, and which can also be found in other ethnic minority areas, such as the Qing emperor of Chengde or the recent nomination of the Silk Road. And these are the three, like a quick tool of these three case studies.
0: Great, and drilling down now, I, you know, I'd love to learn more about your actual process for re- researching these sites, um, how much of it was on the ground, how much of it was literature review,
1: um,
0: you know, did you conduct interviews? How did you go about this process?
1: Um, Chris, Christina and I have different kind of training backgrounds, so maybe we can both talk a bit about the, the, the methods or training, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I was trained as an anthropologist, and that requires to stay with one place or community for a long time, which is kind of traditional sense of anthropologist. So we need to study their culture and social life and be for a while and to be closer to them. And so we call to get a sense of being there is crucial that requires me to hang out with both communities and visitors in their daily life. So for instance, in the workspace, in the tea house, cafe, local market and restaurants. So I visited several sites um, many times, um, and each time I might stay there for one, two months, and sometimes three, four months if, if it allows, because I'm traveling overseas, if, and if the funding allows. And during each visit, I met and catch up with old friends, and also meet new people and make new friends. And different from traditional um, anthropological way of staying at a place for at least one year, such repetitive visits allows me to understand the impact of heritage on various stage of people' life. So it helped me to understand the transformation rather than only a, sh- a short period of, of the place. And Christina, you might have other uh, understanding of your research process.
2: So uh, I was trained as a political scientist um, and I I mean I similarly go you know back to um, you know, sites of my interests, uh, but I, I often, um, I engage in more, you know, formal like semi-structured interviews with with people. Um, I often also include government officials, you know, to kind of get um, you know just a government perspective on on things. Um, but I also kind of try to include, um, you know, just uh, experiences like just, you know participant observation, being you know at sites, um, for instance, talking to vendors uh, selling handcrafts, uh, being in museums, thinking about what uh, you know how. Um, you know, the site is structured talking to people there um so so for me it's it's a bit different um to than you know Ujie, but i think we both have a kind of just a long-term experience in researching this topic in general but also have long-standing connections with the hair you know with the sites that we um, have researched so although we we kind of have maybe um collected you know somewhat different um kinds of materials in terms of maybe being more formal or less formal in our conversations I think we we, it kind of very much um, speaks to each other and we can still we still have very much overlapping experiences and um, can share these and I think it's really a you know kind of a uh, kind of a positive thing to kind of combine these different approaches and um, you know disciplinary fieldwork strategies so to speak um, because they give you different perspectives and different you know different kinds of um, insights. So, so therefore, um, yeah, I, th- I think we very much complement each other in our approaches to doing research on these sites.
1: And and one more thing I like to add here is we both um, in, in this research project we don't we both not only study low that means we study the community the place but we also study high. So we both have a chance to um, go to um, high high end heritage conference sometimes organized by UNESCO or sometimes organized by university academics. These are the places where you also observe uh, as a participant. One, on one side, you're academic, so you present your research uh, or as a consultant, but on, this, on the other side, hand, that you also understand what is going on in, as part of that heritage industry.
0: And that's a great segue into talking about what you observe with the heritage industry or the heritage industrial complex. Um, you observe, you know, what's often called UNESCOization within these sites, um, how the recognition as a World Heritage Site transforms this space and transforms daily life. Can you explain some of what that was? for listeners, what you experienced, what you observed.
2: Yes, sure. Um, so one of the key um, kind of conceptual contributions that we want to make is to make this process of, you, you know, UNESCOization um, a bit clearer. Um, so we, we've we con- kind of conceptualized um, a five-stage process, um, which kind of begins with, um, usually the state kind of creating institutions for heritage governance. So this can include laws and policies. It can include a heritage administration. Um, so in China, for instance, you would think of the state administration for cultural heritage that deals with heritage sites, but also the Ministry of Culture and Tourism that is more dealing with intangible heritage. Um, so you have this you know, kind of a huge setup at the beginning where the state uh, really wants to of intervene, so to speak, in the in the past or in kind of in what is um, you know cultural practices at the ground today or or, or heritage sites um, or, or kind of or just sites of historical significance, if you will. Um, so this kind of the starting um, point, this institutionalization, but um, a kind of a more communal space or you know a kind of maybe a more private or communal cultural practice that you know wasn't known before, wasn't. Um, you know, considered to be heritage before really becomes heritage when um, it is authenticated um, and recognized by, you know, officials. So some kind of these official institutions that have been set up. So, for instance, a, a local government might, um, you know, select a few sites or cultural practices um, for, you know, further research. And then they invite experts to, you know, to see whether this, this does have some value, you know, some um, there are reasons for preserving this site or this practice. Um, so in the second kind of step of authentication, you want to, you know, see whether a site or, or a practice um, is authentic, is valuable. Um, and then in the third step, you, you then recognize it um, in some form, usually by putting it on um, some kind of inventory. So this could be you know, a, a list, so heritage lists such as, you know, a site of sig- historical significance or a 4A, 5A, you know, level or star uh, tourism site. So um, you somehow create categories and, um, you know, documentation for these heritage, you know, to, to make something into a heritage site, because before it was, you know, just, just there, just kind of a private communal affair. Now it's something that is officially recognized and turned into something that can be managed through public administration. Um, and through this process of kind of recognizing something, um, you again, then not only authenticate it, but you also usually associate it with some kind of value of, for instance, four or five stars or national value, local value, because you put it on a local list or a national level heritage list, for instance. And in this process, then something that was more private or communal becomes heritage and therefore also a public good, so something that, you know, belongs to the nation because it's of national significance. Or if you list it at the UNESCO, it becomes heritage of, you know, human humanity. So it's it's something that everybody in the world is um, interested in and is valued, really, at the international level. And um, in the fourth process, then, um, you or kind of the fourth, fourth step, you, you find that once something has become heritage, it is often Kind of displayed in some form. Um, so, for instance, in museums. So, and this is done for educational purposes, for kind of sharing that public good with everyone. It could be, you know, as as a in form of kind of leisure um, activities. But but this is really there to, um, yeah, kind of to display, um, you know, kind of heritage domestically, internationally. Um, but however, because people get interested in and are aware of um, this, this heritage as a good once it is displayed, it also attracts attention from people who want to exploit it commercially. So in the fifth step, and this is not always the case, it could be that for instance something just remains in a museum but um, often heritage actually is then commercialized. Um, for instance you, you could think of um, certain you know performing arts, Um, kind of shows touring the country or or certain handcrafts suddenly becoming extremely expensive because they have become en vogue, you know, and um, or or just uh, real estate prices going up uh, around a heritage site. So there's a lot of um, kind of use of heritage in different ways through the tourism industry, cultural industries, but also um, just as a part of, you know, as, as Uji just explained, you know, urban redevelopment, um, so therefore you can see how something that has, you know, was very vernacular, very local, suddenly becomes heritage and then is used in different ways. And this, we really kind of have identified these five um, individual steps, institutionalization, authentication, recognition, museumification, and commercialization, kind of to make this clear, make it a bit more um, explicit. Um, and in the book, we then argue that in in these five steps, um, The kind of this something that was previously just you know had no name was not really identified as heritage, something very communal, um, is is bestowed with value from you know that is actually constructed and legitimised at different scales. So, for instance, the the nation state might um, you know on the basis of being a member of the UNESCO UNESCO Convention um, might then say, okay, this is in line with the UNESCO Convention, we put this site on. Um, a domestic list and will nominate it for inclusion on the world heritage list. So they kind of, they, they use the, you know, UNESCO convention as a basis for bestowing value to a heritage site. And the same can be done by local governments who then kind of use maybe national legislation um, as a kind of a a kind of legitimizing force to bestow value on local, um, you know, practices, festivals. And they say, um, you know, OK, we, we will put this on a list and therefore um, bestow it with value through that. But also non-state actors try to kind of, you know, join that process, have a, have a voice in that process by, um, you know, trying to, for instance, either use scientific knowledge uh, as experts, kind of try to lobby for um, something to be considered as heritage because it has, you know, a certain um, it's very old or it has had a huge impact on society. But you, or also, you find local communities kind of trying to be part of that process, being heard, and um, wanting to, you know, maybe for instance, lobby uh, for a certain site or practice to be considered as heritage, or to actually themselves use UNESCO concepts, for instance, um, to try to, um, you know, demonstrate the value of a certain site or practice.
0: And it sounds like those community voices often get lost in the process.
1: It's not necessary. Um, As Christina mentioned um, nicely, of this whole framework, uh, we are not only interested in how heritage is made and produced through that five stage process institutionalization, authentication, recognition, museumification, and commercialization. We are also very interested in the different and sometimes contested reception response from the public, especially those as you mentioned, the voices from the local communities. So we found from our study that many culture practitioners, experts, and entrepreneurs embraced official heritage discourse for often their personal benefits. But not everyone do so. Some local communities um, often subline or passively accept the idea of heritage. Or even sometimes they translate and incorporate the official tra- narrative into something for their own use. So for instance, just to give you an example, I found in Xi'an that elders' residents surrounding the ancient city war organized private exhibitions around their home city, about their home city. And such way of heritage practice or commemoration does not refer to the official discourse of glorious Chinese past, which is an official version of heritage. It's rather about their vernacular daily life as a response to the official heritage discourse. Such way of heritage practice is an expression of their emotional anxiety and a loss against the rapid transformation and the local environment. Um, In regards to the response from the local communities, we also find um, in addition to um, embracing or uh, accepting, uh, there are also people you occasionally using, use various strategies or um, ways to resist and sometimes protest the state-led heritage production, such as they do it through online or sometimes on the street. This often happens when their personal interest has been threatened. Uh, for example, they, they are not happy with the compensations or they lost their house or even land through that her- heritage displacement project. So this analysis leads to a very important finding of this project. So we argue that cultural heritage, due to its associated aesthetic culture and economic value, will lead to a relatively easier form of political consensus. And as we mentioned, even there's a lot of different response or different voices from the community, and sometimes even they are protested against it. It's very difficult for people to resist the almost attention Of official heritage production. So as long as people's personal needs, such as money or land issues, has been fulfilled, they are often very happy with those national ideology behind cultural heritage. And that's what we call the power of the past as a title of the book, because that's the power of legitimacy as created by cultural heritage.
0: I do think one of the values of your book is your really sophisticated articulation of the five-stage process for heritage making, which we don't really see spelled out as explicitly in a lot of other places. So I appreciate you covering that. I want to come back to, uh, you mentioned your very different backgrounds, and I imagine um, wonderfully contrasting work styles. How did you go about the process of collaborating to create this book or to bring this book into the world?
1: Sure. Um, I'm personally very grateful for the process of this collaborative project. Um, as mentioned, Christina and I both are very interested in Chinese cultural heritage. And we have different training backgrounds, but that makes us to see things from different angles. And we really enjoyed lots of our conversations through online or actual meetings. So we went to different workshops, conferences. And of course, um, it's easier in the beginning when we are doing different research and, 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 and creates a lot of joint uh, research interests. It's relatively not easy at the writing phase of the project where we are at two different places. So Christina was at that time in London and I'm in Canberra. So, I'm very grateful that during the last stage of writing, Christina flew to Canberra and we spent two weeks in intensive writing together at a writing camp and complete the draft of a discussion and introduction chapter. Usually, that's the last stage of the book. And we really, I mean, that's a very busy writing period, but I, I think we, we really have a productive time to complete the most um, difficult but also depth. And finding or analysis of the, of the framework which we just presented. Christina, you might have other um, perception of our journey.
2: <laughs> oh, actually, I, I absolutely agree. I, I had a really good time. Uh, it was just a lot of fun and you can really just imagine this as a process of Ujimi talking a lot you know, discussing a lot, you know, mentioning different perspectives, the, you know, of course also sometimes being at odds at, um, you know, kind of what to include where in the book. And of course there's always kind of, you know, some compromises and discussions in, in this area. But I think what has been most productive is that these discussions have, have really kind of helped us both to um spell out, as you said, you know, the, the implicit knowledge that we have, you know, we, we kind of both, have you know researched heritage in China for so long that we, we kind of we wanted to you know make this explicit and by kind of discussing it with um, each other we we kind of realized oh there is actually this process of value appropriation where you know people do um, just on the basis of you know for instance uh, you know kind of the UNESCO or national the national institutions or whatever appropriate value and that's what what Uji just mentioned that's why people can't resist because it's so um, attractive you know to, to get legitimacy and and be valued every that's every, everybody wants that right um and although we you know we have done research on this for so long it was really um you know just this to kind of just sit there and be like yes that's that's exactly what it is that that's what it boils down to and um and although we do have different ways of approaching things i think it was really this um, you know, this coming together, these long, long discussions, uh, these different perspectives that have helped us to crystallize these key, you know, analytical frameworks on the one hand, but also just key um, arguments that we, um, that do we develop in the book. So that was just a really, really fun um, exercise. And I, yeah, I enjoyed it tremendously. Thank you.
0: One of the things I always find really amazing about talking with, Authors is not just what's in the book, but you hit up at this what's not in the book or what you chose to edit because that's hard. That's not an easy thing to take something you love out of a book. What were some of the things that you removed or that you kind of put on the back burner for the next in book?
1: In terms, in terms of current planning, or, or um, what I I just had a new book actually coming out soon. Um. Um, called Heritage Tourism from Pro- Problems to Possibilities, which will be published by Cambridge, Cambridge University Press and hopefully next week um, which explores the social and the political effects of an implication of heritage tourism. Uh, but it, re- back to your question that um, which um, something that doesn't which we want to include and, and it's not there and I think would be good for the future project or next book. Um, I'm currently working on memory politics and the idea of national forgetting. So lots of things we have covered is relative about the the remote past, something beautiful, romanticized, and colorful, and aesthetic-pleasing. But but also there's a lot of things about recent past. Um, It's not that safe compared to the remote one. It's contested, it's dark difficult, um, tragic, tragic, which regards to a lot of contested politics. So I'm interested in how national states forget and erase certain difficult, problematic paths for nation building. And also how local community use private museums and practice to shape that social memory from below. So if you want saying that what do what you want to include or in your future project, I think maybe it's a. Um, Something about national forgetting could could be a interesting angle that I like to explore more in the future. And how about you, Christina?
2: Yeah, I think I think we um, definitely discussed this also in regards to what kind of case studies to look at. For instance, um, so there there, there, be, there are so many interesting choices really. And I think um, other choices that that might be interesting to look at in the future would be um, to go to areas that are, um, you know, as Uji has just mentioned, maybe. Have a different sense of you know, heritage because they are, for instance, in the rust of you know rust belt of China. They they might be now considered to be places of industrial heritage because those new you know kind of uh, there's new opportunities for categorizing something as heritage now, um, and industrial heritage is one of them. Um, but also, what has been really kind of up and coming in the last couple of decades has been like a communist heritage, red heritage, red culture. Um, and that is really, really fascinating as well. So to think about how the Mao era has become nostalgic and how there's heritage sites related to that. Um, so there's a lot of interesting, you know, other cases to explore, which we, we just didn't have the time in the scope um, in the book uh, to discuss these different um, places. Um, but personally, I've also um, been a bit more interested lately in um, the political economy of, of, of heritage, looking at commercialization, Looking at heritage, um, you know, products on markets, how they're um, advertised, what that does to, you know, the the kind of this this idea of kind of having an authentic, um, you know, for instance, performance or handcraft, um, and how that how these traditional handcrafts can compete with other new products, um, you know, mass-produced products on the market. So um, I've been moving on a bit more into the this kind of what we touched upon in terms of commercialization. Um, so, so I think there's, there's a lot of different avenues that we could have explored as well. Um, and that we will, um, explore in the future. I think the system um, it's really hard to this kind of, to make this decision. What do you include? What do you not include? Um, because there's just so, so much to talk about,
0: but you did a great job at coming up with a really, a concise book. Um, it's short, it's punchy. It has all the key pieces. Um, what did you learn in the process of really editing and re- and drilling down? What did you learn in the process of making this into a book?
2: I think uh, though Uji and I have been, you know, studying heritage for, you know, for so long really. And, and we, we've often talked about, uh, you know, our ideas and, and opinions. Um, and then we had this clear idea of a book, you know, to kind of to talk about, uh, you know, what, you know, the politics of heritage. But I think the, the, The interesting thing is what I've learned is that even though you might think you you know you you're past your PhD level you you know you do know what you want to write about and you have all of this experience um, writing a book is always still very transformative in terms of especially you know if you do somebody else to, to kind of come up with kind of new new ideas and it's always such a you know such a, a learning process still even though you you think you know you have you know you know exactly what what you want to include um so i think that that has been something that was um, surprising to the you know to the extent of which i you know further learned and you know grew together with with Lucia um so that was really surprising and and wonderful
1: yeah, I like your word, Christina. That the term transformative. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking. Of, I'm thinking about a, a better vocabulary, but I think that's a very good one. Um, I totally agree with you, Christina. That's um, a lot of things is in your in our mind, but it's not explicitly there. So, but the the process of um, writing together and talking together um, and 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 working together do make everything more uh, explicit and transform into a book is is part of the process of research. So we saw the research has been done through our different empirical uh, journey, but but actually not because the, 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 the actual writing part is also a very important stage of research because a lot of ideas um, come out at the last stage of that. So I like your word transformative.
0: <laughs> what ideas in that last stage surprised you, if any?
1: Um I, I probably would not call it surprising. Um, um because a lot of things we we design, we both are very I I would say we both are very kind of Germanic. So we design in, in, in the beginning of the framework, but but a lot of uh, the, the argument, the key argument come out in, in eventually in, in the end. Um but I would say that um even in the beginning because we have we we have different preferences of different um case study, but eventually it's come out very beautiful landscape of the holistic picture of cultural heritage in China. Um, so I probably were not quite a surprise, um, but I do think that we both cover different part uh, of, of, of perspective of, of heritage um, and in a very coherent way. Um, and I think that that's a very good good end. Of course, we we, we probably were adding more things into it for, for other journal articles and papers. Um, but we do find uh, that book is already complete. Um, and I, I would not call it a, 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 a surprise. <laughs> and
0: Before we start recording, we're talking a bit about the respective COVID responses um, in our areas. And I don't want to gloss over the challenge of publishing a book during um, the pandemic. Have you had a chance to, uh, you know, normally... Y- you know, one would be on a book tour, or would uh, be visiting universities to really talk about the book. But um, that's been really changed substantially this year. What was, did you get a sense of the reception? What was that like? How do you feel? What do you feel like it was like to really bring this scholarship into the world at this particular moment?
2: It was really it was difficult because the we did have um, you know a few events planned already and um, and then it was clear that COVID would not make that possible. Um, but we, we still we still tried to do what we could. So for, you know for instance just use social media or we, we attended online conferences to you know promote the book as much as we could. But um, I was very you know happy that uh, I did see lots of you know very positive book reviews being published and. Um, The book has been cited a lot so far so I I think it's to me surprising (laughs) has been that um, although we weren't able to promote the book as much as we wanted to it has still been really well uh, received by the you know scholarly community and I'm happy that people find the book interesting and useful Um, so so yes maybe you know you never know what would have happened if COVID hadn't uh, happened but uh, I'm still very much pleased about
1: um, how the book has been received overall. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, I, when I saw this question, I did a bit of research. I mean, even before that, I, I didn't go, go to that part about reception. Um, as, as Christina mentioned, we don't um, really have the chance to do an organized official book launch. Maybe we hope we can do it um, and very happily to, to see Christina again <laughs> after <laughs> launching the book. Um, when we launched the book Um, but I just saw actually there was a review was published probably last month and it was, I'm happy to share with you Christina, it was very positive and I just quickly go through that saying that that the book was as a must read about associations between dynamic political discourse and daily practice in the present rhythm of heritage in China and so I'm very happy to see the reception of that, and and and, and also it's being widely cited around the world, even just after one years of publication. So we are very happy about that. You should be,
0: though. You shouldn't be surprised by it, I have to say. Um, all of, and in particular, your um, process for um, value appropriation is one that I can easily imagine being on slides in every single, you know, heritage management introductory course, right? It's very useful and very uh, very transferable set of knowledge that doesn't just cover these particular sites, but also covers the larger area of um, heritage making and heritage identification. So I've taken up a lot of your time and I appreciate your generosity in talking with this book and joining me from different time zones um, from across the world. For our listeners, um, who I would strongly recommend read this book, uh, where can they learn more about your other work, or where can they find out more about your scholarship?
2: Uh, yes, so I, of course, I you know have a University of Sheffield website, and at Sheffield at the moment, and um, I have of course a list there. I also have a Google Scholar account, um, just where you can find everything. Um, yeah, I mean, you know the usual places. I would say also on Academia Edu or ResearchGate. So I think there's if you if you just type in Ujir's or my name um, into Google Scholar, I think you'll find uh, a lot because we we've, we've published quite a lot on this topic. So um, yeah, or just get in touch. Uh, feel free to just um, let us know if there's anything that you know is of particular interest. And
0: actually, in researching this, I did exactly that, and I found a really helpful. Um, Lecture from you, from Cornell, I think it was in 2016, that gave a wonderful crash course to Heritage Fever and to this, kind, this phenomenon in China.
1: Oh, that's right. You were there. I didn't realize it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't get to physically attend oh, okay, lecture, the lecture, but I got to see the video, um, oh, yes. which is very helpful for framing the book. And I think that's
1: a, right scholarship. Right. And, and later I use that as a, as a teaching material, um, and which I found also very useful. So we never lost a waste of opportunity for online materials these days during the COVID period.
0: Well, thank you again for joining me on New Books and Law.
1: Thank you very much, Nick. Um, it's our, our pleasure to, to be here and even in different time zones. And it's already our pleasure to discussing our books. Thank you.
2: For having us. It was a pleasure as well.
0: All right Eugene Christina stay safe you too stay you safe too.
1: in new york and enjoy enjoy freedom hopefully room. <laughs>